chapter 6, verses 1 to 9. Now, when Sambatan and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Sambalat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come and let us meet together at Hakiferim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messages to them, saying, I'm doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this manner. In the same way, Sambalit for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, It was reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah, and now the king will hear these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him, saying, No such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking... Their hands will drop from the work, and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. Thank you, Jen. This is God's Word. Did you pick up that life lesson there? If you can go back to the first slide. When somebody you don't trust invites you to a place called Oh No, <laughs> don't do it. You might even want to say, Oh No, I'm afraid I can't. Remember that, Sam, when somebody invites you to down the corridor at the end and you don't trust him, and he says, come meet me at Ono, you just say, oh no, <laughs> can't do it. Love that line where uh, he replies four times, uh, Nehemiah gets this word, come, 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 we want to meet you in, the, in this plane, in Ono, and he says four times, No. He says four times, and I think it, it was four plus one. They had already come four times, and they come back again, and he says, I am doing a great work. Wow, what a beautiful man. What a beautiful conviction. What an amazing thought that a person has such a, a, a focus, a single focus, that uh, he or she can push back on distractions and, and things that would come their way to simply go, I am doing a great work. Sometimes we envy those people hey, that are, are so single-mindedly focused. They're so set on the thing that they've been called to do. And the expectation in the New Testament, uh, in Jesus, is that every follower of Jesus would experience a kind of single-minded focus towards the thing that God's called them to do. We see in, in Nehemiah, this is an amazing story where the people of Israel have really been through the worst time imaginable. These are the people who, you know, after the, the story of Eden and the fall of mankind were, were called through Abraham to become a nation who would bless the world. And through them, they would once again restore Eden. They would be the people of God who would show the world how good the God of, of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob truly is. And it would be the temple and it would be the city of Jerusalem from where this blessing would flow and the nations would flow to them. And they tasted it through David. They tasted it a bit through Solomon. They had moments of glory. 
But now you get to 500 BC, and they have been through the mill. The beautiful temple that they had been built has been raised to the ground. The walls have been burnt. There is nothing recognizable about this city that was once called the city of God, the the place to which people would flock and say, this is the one true God. It is in ruins. And about 12 years earlier, Ezra had come and had begun the the journey of, of building the temple again. And these Israelites were a small remnant of people stuck in Jerusalem, but the majority of them had been shipped off away up into Persia, and they were living their their kind of lives out in Babylon and had kind of assimilated and lost their identity as the people of God, but a small remnant of people come back to Israel, come back to this city, and they believe God calls them to restore this Called to restore the sense of, of what God called them originally to be, to be a blessing to the nations, to be uh, the, the people of the presence of God. Now, this is important to understand the context because this isn't some sort of, you know, simple building project. You know, you hear of a buddy who wants to build a house and you go, oh, all the best with that. This is something that is filled with history in that there, is, there was glory and now it's become quite gory and difficult. There was a sense of, of even opposition. Sanballat, Tobias, and, and all their cronies are going, if you rebuild, we're going to take you down. Because they don't want to see other nations, other people groupings uh, kind of coming up and, and restoring themselves. There was a jealousy in their hearts. And so this, this sense of Nehemiah and the likes of Ezra rebuilding Israel was a very brave and very difficult journey. It wasn't something that was, could be taken lightly. But they understood who they were. You see, Nehemiah understood who he was, that he was a person who was living in the lineage of the story of God, the story of, of Abraham, who was given a land to pioneer. The the lineage of David, who was given a people, a flock to shepherd and to love. The, The lineage of these great people of God. And he knew that God had given him a wall to build. And he was in deep understanding that this was a great work. This was a great work. Well, what's the great work that you're up to in your life? Nehemiah understood himself to be doing a great work. Something that was worth giving up his time and his energy for. Something that when opposition and distraction came, he could put up a very strong and courageous no in, that, in the face of that. See, today I pretty simply want to remind you, and I want to remind myself, that like Adam had a garden to tend, like Abraham had a nation to take, like uh, David had a flock to tend, You and I have a wall to build. You and I have a a part to play in the kingdom of God. And when much of Israel had lost the beauty of what it meant to partner with God and to be part of building with Him in His kingdom, there was a small remnant who still thought it was a great work. And there is something to be said for that. In a world where it seems more and more people are going, you know, let's, let's just take a bit of everything. There's going to be a few who are going to look back on their lives and remind themselves that to work in and for Jesus is a great work. It is a great work. 
Hey, we often describe the, the work and the partnership that we do with Jesus in three words. We talk about presence, being with Jesus, formation, becoming like Jesus, and mission, to love the world like Jesus loves the world. And really, that is in some ways the wall that God has called us all to build, to build a wall of being with Jesus. You and I are called to every day of our lives to learn what it means to just be with Him. That's a very tough task in a rushed, hurried world to learn what it means to slow down and simply know how to be with God. But I've got stuff to do, Jesus. Well, I just want to be with you. Presence, be with and then, of course, to, to become like him, to, to let our characters become more and more like Jesus' character, in that we express pres uh, 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 love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. The fruits of the Spirit begin to emerge from our lives. And then mission, that actually God has put some people in our lives to actually love. Some that are far from Jesus to help come close to Jesus. Some that are, are broken and, 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 and are, are sort of marginalized in society to, to bring a hand up, to bring freedom and, and, and love to them. This is the call. This is the, the wall that we've been called to build. And like Michael Eaton says, he says that Nehemiah's metaphor of building the wall is very obviously something that we in our generation and, and reading it from the New Covenant can, can take and go, actually, this is, these are lessons for us in partnering with Jesus, in building uh, the kingdom, in being partners with him in building the kingdom. But you see that as he does this work, as he's building this wall, and he's actually coming quite close to completion. Well done, Nehemiah. He's building this wall, and it says, actually, there's only the gates that need to be put on, and still his detractors are sending messages saying, this guy mustn't finish. We don't want this thing to succeed. Uh, Michael Eaton reminds us, whenever you begin to take some ground in the kingdom. You begin to make some progress. You start to grow in what it means to be a follower of Jesus, and you start learning, hey, this is what it means to be present with Jesus. This is what it means to pray, and your, your life starts making progress, and suddenly you learn to love people. If you're married, you start to really prioritize your spouse. You become a better listener. You're not always about you and so self-centered. If you're a single, you're taking your own personal purity seriously. The relationships that you're living in are, are, are lived well in purity. You're owning your own mistakes. You're learning to really care for people. You're, you're building a relationship with God, and you're becoming a blessing. You're, you're starting to build this wall. You're starting to, to tend to the garden. You're starting to become a, a real blessing. When that happens anticipate opposition. Anticipate some pushback. Anticipate a few things happening. Here's a few things I think you can anticipate. Distraction, distortion, and distance. That's what happens in the life of Nehemiah. A recently written book by a guy named Michael Easter, he says it like this. The book is called Three Pieces of Glass. Why we feel lonely in a world mediated by screens. And uh, I beg your pardon, it's written by Jacobson, Eric Jacobson. And um, he's got a simple idea with profound implications where he simply says the way we show up in our lives gets uh, uh, impacted by three simple pieces of glass. Our phones, our TVs, and our windscreens. He says they have this profound ability. Your smartphone distracts you. Your TV distorts the story of life, and the windshield creates distance between you and the stuff that really 
matters. We, and, and he talks about the commute and the impact of, of the commute from really doing the stuff God has called us to do in some of the most fundamental relationships. Don't feel heavily judged uh, because you commute. Don't feel bad. There are some things we can't avoid. But he writes a profound book talking about how these three pieces of glass <laughs> have this ability to do what the enemy of Nehemiah was trying to do in a very similar way. Firstly, notice how these, uh, these enemies try to distract him. Notice how they try to distract Nehemiah from the work. It says in verse 4, four times the messenger came. Four times. Isn't that amazing? He was persistent. He kept coming back saying, come meet with us. We want to talk about this wall that you're building. We want to, and they would try to uh, spin the story as best they could to try to take them off the path of simply getting this wall built. Michael Easter, the author I was speaking about, in his book, The Comfort Crisis, says this, the average American touches their phone how many times? Let's hear some numbers. Per day. 265, 3,000, let's hear some more numbers. 700. Okay, I love this. This is fun. 2,617 times for your average person. Your power user, we're talking about teens often, they sometimes get up to 5,000 touches per day. It's usually not a great work. It's a distraction. So much of our lives, the scientific implications of our time being distracted by this piece of glass called our phone. I had a fascinating and humbling interaction with my daughter, who basically began to parent me. She's six years old. About how I should be interacting with my phone. And not only how I should interact with my phone, it was a bedtime, losing your mind kind of moment where a lot of truth actually comes out, and how this phone is not your child, and how you should not be looking so much at this when you should be looking at your kids, and how you should be listening to us. And I found myself going, oh my goodness, she's right. There wasn't much that was wrong. From the mouths of babes came a radically humbling rebuke, a powerful sense of correction. I heard a story of a guy who was doing a seminar, speaking in an audience like this, and somebody pops up their hand and asks a question. The, the guy proceeds to answer the question, but as he looks at the person who was asking the question, he sees the guy's taken out his phone, and he's starting to look at his phone. So the speaker goes totally silent. He goes totally silent. And then... The whole audience looks down at the guy who's on his phone, who's asked the question, and he didn't even notice. And they all just stared. Until eventually the guy was so oblivious he just carried on, he never answered the question. Because he never even listened to one bit of the, of the answer to the question he was being asked. I wonder if this could be a parallel for many of our lives, except... It's our children, our wives, our friends who are waiting for us to look up. Maybe true of my life. And, and maybe the distraction isn't your phone, but we are a very distracted society. And Nehemiah had this ability because he understood the greatness of the work to be able to stay focused on what was most important. The next reality in Nehemiah's life was that there was distortion. There was distortion. 
Notice in verse 6, they come to him and they start to say, do you know what the, the rumors are around? That you're building this wall, Nehemiah, and you know what the people are saying? You're building this wall because you want to put Israel back in place, and you want to become the king. And word of this is going to get to the true king, and he is going to be mildly unhappy. The story starts to get distorted. It gets told in a new way. And Nehemiah, right at the end, he responds by simply going, no such thing. You're talking nonsense. But it's very important for us, and I really want you to listen to me in this moment. Because I find myself, probably in these moments, feeling like it's the hardest one to speak about. But if you talk about the second screen, it's the television screen. Because the television screen is filled with things like Netflix and Apple TV or whatever, DSTV. And it comes to tell a new story. It comes to distort the story of what really matters and what we're really meant to be building, and what we're really meant to be spending our lives on. And it tries to just tweak it ever so slightly, so that it's about something else, so that it's slightly tweaked away from the kingdom of God towards the kingdom of self. And so it feels like we take a little bit of what we like, and we leave a little bit of what we don't like. John Tyson, in quite a, a long excerpt, says this, he says, the typical Netflix user in the U.S. watches 3.2 hours of Netflix a day. It's all U.S. stats, but let's, let's give or take a bit for South Africa. Maybe you want to round up or down. Even if you are below that national average, the formative effect of being spoon-fed the narratives, values, and plot lines of the world begins to shape your mind and imagination. Shows today are designed to be addictive. Listen, they're designed to be addictive. With so much competition and so many options, nudity, shock value, and intrigue are at precision levels to harvest your attention. I'm amazed how much knowledge people retain about their favorite shows, says John Tyson. Complex character histories, multi-season plot lines, whole imaginary kingdoms have taken root in their hearts. The same is true of sports, he says. Player profiles, statistics, teammates, histories. It's truly impressive. Men who can't remember where Paul's teachings on fatherhood are in the New Testament can give you the dynasty breakdown of their favorite Premier League team or their favorite F1 team or the Boca or whatever it may be. Era by era, player by player for decades. There's nothing inherently wrong with shows or sport. But when we know more about Stranger Things or fill in your favorite Ted Lasso than the classes our kids are taking right now, the family dynamics of their closest friends, the emerging complexities of their inner worlds, our priorities have been distorted. Wow. We're building a great thing. The work we're doing is a great work. But the enemy would love to come in creative and subtle ways and just distort it ever so slightly. We got put onto Ted Lasso recently. And um, has anyone watched Ted Lasso? Pop up your hand. No? Yes. Okay. There's not as many fans as I thought. Um, not sure I would advise it anyway. <laughs> but it's, it's gripping, as every good show is that's kind of, you know, super popular. And um, there's this one scene where Ted Lasso, uh, essentially, the whole narrative moves you 
towards feeling this deep compassion and this deep kind of desire to celebrate the brave moment where he gets divorced. And something inside of you, if you're a discerning watcher, is going, I'm confused. Because I moved, because there's the sense that the, the whole narrative has made you want to feel like you should go, amazing, your wife just doesn't feel like she can love you any longer, there's no real major reason, she just doesn't feel like she loves you anymore. And somehow the best thing you can do for each other is liberate each other into new single lives. And if you watch it, you, your heart can begin to believe that that's, that's the way things work. Until you take a step back and you look at it objectively and you look at it biblically and you put on a, a new frame and you go, no, that isn't how we believe in marriage. We don't believe that when things are just too difficult and you just simply can't love each other anymore, you just push the abort button and move on. Let's eject from this thing. I know marriage is tough and I know there are lots of reasons why uh, divorce uh, may be legitimate. But we live in a world where if you aren't discerning, if you aren't careful about what you celebrate as you watch it, you find yourself simply being drawn in and your heart begins to create a new way that you believe the world should be. Your imagination is reoriented towards a new value system. And we need to realize that. Our, our, our vision of the great work gets distorted by a new vision, a, a vision that isn't created by Jesus. I love Nehemiah's response. He is so decisive. Then I sent to him saying in verse 8, No such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. He is clear. He is submerged in the story of God. He understands the, the story of redemption. And he looks at the distorting stories and he goes, No such thing. But how long, if he had submerged himself in that, how long would he have begun to believe? How long did he need till he might begin to believe it? I don't know. The final thing that these enemies tried to do is they tried to create distance between him and the, the great work that he's doing. Notice that in verse 2. Come to meet us together in Hakifirim. How's that? Say Hakifirim. Come on, say it to the person next to you. You'll clear your throat nicely. Hakifirim. Learned a new word, hey? Anyone looking to name their child anytime soon? <laughs> Baby dedication's coming up. Come, let us meet together in Hakifirim on the plain of Ono. It's about 40 k's away. Come away from the work. Nehemiah, it says he knew that they planned to harm him. I think that's code for end him. But they're trying to pull him away from the thing. And so often it's distance between us and the valuable stuff, the work of God. You just need to be away for a little while and suddenly it loses its luster. It loses its shine. It loses its beauty. It can happen even on a holiday. Honestly, I can go away on a vacation and I come back and I'm like, oh my gosh, I've got to remember what, what it is that God's called me to. Because sometimes vacation is an escapist thing and we need to learn even to, to do vacation well that our hearts stay fresh. How often at the end of a vacation or a holiday do you find yourself going, I don't know if I can go back to all of that? Because we haven't done vacation right. We've tried to escape from the real world, not realizing that we need to find grace and strength for the real world. And so often in our lives, we let the enemy try to distance us from the stuff that matters 
so that he can kind of just take away the beauty of the work we're called to. Distance us maybe from our key relationships, more time in the car, more time traveling, more time doing work, more time away, and suddenly the person God's called you to love the most is the person you see the least, connect with the least, date the least, whatever it may be, and suddenly your marriage is going, oh my gosh, I'm in trouble here. Whether it is the commute, maybe there is that reality that the commute has, has put too much strain on some of the key parts of our building blocks of, of what it means to be building the kingdom. It's not easy to build the kingdom with a marriage that's in trouble. God would sometimes say, hey, make some fresh reprioritizations of what really matters. What are some of those things that maybe are subtly just distancing you? Maybe it's a hobby. And the hobby demands that you're traveling lots, often. And so the people around you are just, they're not getting the best of you. And so you don't know the emotional realities of the people God's called you to. And I'm not just speaking to married. I'm, I'm speaking to people who aren't married. I'm speaking to those of us who may be just distancing ourselves, escaping from things. Maybe you can escape and you're in the same house as the people God's called you to love and serve because of another screen or another hobby, and you're so submerged in that that God's uh, wanting you to learn to love people, but you're just, you're distanced. You're distanced. You've created unhelpful boundaries between you and the things God has called you to. And so it's so many good excuses, and those habits develop, and suddenly you've got distance between the work of the kingdom which is about presence, just being with Jesus. It's about formation. It's learning to love people like Jesus. It's, it's about mission. It's about being in the places. It's about doing all of that in the context of community. It really is fascinating. The healthiest people in our community are the people who keep pitching up. There is a direct parallel. I know it sounds maybe judgmental. It's not. It's just factual. Keep pitching up, and there's the sense of just staying healthy. And you have bad times and you have good times. But the moment you just keep pitching up and you're doing your Sunday thing and you're doing your life group thing, and whether it feels good or feels rubbish, you just keep pitching up because the people of God keep pointing you towards the person of Jesus. And the person of Jesus keeps helping you to become just that much more healthy. There's something amazing about it. Distance tries to pull us away from those beautiful habits that are life-giving rituals. So what you're building what you're turning down to build it. Like Nehemiah, it's going to require courage. It's going to receive opposition, and it's going to appear mundane at times. Hey, guys, we're going to do this. We're going to put bricks on top of each other for a long time until this wall is built. It's kind of mundane. Wake up and read your Bible, and then say sorry when you need to say sorry, and, and try to find the heart of Jesus and the basics of life. It's mundane, but it's beautiful. Make sense? I told this story often when we ordain elders. Three men putting bricks on a wall. Person goes to the first person and says, Hey, what are you doing? Oh, I'm laying a brick. Oh, that's the truth. Goes to the next person. That person looks a little happier, a little more joyful. So, well, what are you doing? Oh, I'm, I'm building a wall. Cool. Goes to the next person. And, and so, what are you doing? And he looks with fire in his eyes doing the exact same thing the other two guys have been doing. And he says, I'm building a cathedral. And he puts the next brick down. 
the same job with a different sense of why you're doing it is so profoundly important. Nehemiah understood that he was doing a great work. Do you understand that as you participate in the kingdom of God in Jesus Christ, you're doing a great work? When you love your wife, when you love your children, when you take your own personal growth and purity seriously, when you walk with Jesus day in and day out, when you pick up the phone to love a person who you know is not getting any love, when you're doing the basics of just loving Jesus day in and day out, you're doing a great work. You're partnering with Adam in intending to the garden. You're bringing flourishing. You're pioneering a new nation like Abraham. You're tending to a flock like David. You're building a wall like Nehemiah. So today I want to, I suppose, just encourage us that as we walk with Jesus, that we would remind ourselves we're doing a great work. And maybe for some of us, we need to take out the brasso. You know what brasso is? And the brass has become dull and you can't see anything. And with the help of the Holy Spirit, you just, just rub it in. And a few minutes later, wow, something that looked so dull becomes so precious. Maybe it's the relationships that you become just familiar with. Because you're so familiar, you forget how precious they are and how quickly they're going to go, whether it's your closest friends or, or the parents in the house that you're living or whether it's your spouse or your children. These are precious relationships to nurture and to tend to and to love, whether it's the unbelieving friends and family who you so badly want to help to find and follow Jesus, to tend to those. So many of us live in a kind of disqualification mindset. We think, oh, that's good for you, Rog. But secretly, subtly, we let ourselves off the hook because I don't know why. We've got a professionalization mindset. I think that's it. We, we go, that's for the pros. And then we, we, everyone's a specialist. If I'm not a specialist, then I don't do it. Here's the thing. There's no specialist followers of Jesus. Every person is given the exact same equipment. And you can have all the same training by the power of the Spirit. Nobody is a pro here. I'm not a pro, and you're not a pro. We're all called to become experts in following Jesus and getting better at this thing day in and day out. So put your shoulders back and realize that everyone is SIN positive. We're all struggling with selfish feelings. We all struggle with temptation. We all want to look out for ourselves. We all want to do things that are, are pleasurable to ourselves and not good for others. That's part of what it means to be a human. But we all need the curriculum of Christ to start this great work freshly, to remind ourselves of the greatness of the task of following him, to get the brasso out, to freshly rub it clean and look at it and go, wow, Jesus, this work is so good. This task is so great. To be in your presence is so special. To become like you is the highest goal of my life. To love the world the way you love the world could not be more riveting in my mind than to do that. So count me in. I am in. Let's do this thing. Why am I allowed to? Because actually in that city, there was only one person who ever went in who was sinless. His name was Jesus. And the amazing thing is that the only sinless one who ever walked inside those walls was kicked out of those walls and was crucified outside the city. No one else should have been allowed in the holy city. No one should have been allowed to that temple. 
But there was one who could have walked in, who owned it all, and yet he was kicked out on our behalf. And it was outside the camp that he's hung on a cross, and he looks out over those who lived in the city thinking they deserved it, and he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And in that moment, grace flowed to humanity such that 2,000 years later, civilization has been shaped by the word called love. And we are called to join in and to be partners in the story of God's truth and love and grace. Today, I honestly felt like the work is great, and I felt like the Holy Spirit looking at husbands and going, do you understand how great the work is? And looking at young single men and going, do you know how great the work is? Do you know what potential lies in the strength God has given you to tend to the garden, to, to, to shepherd a flock, to change the world the way Jesus would have you change the world? Do you know how great the work is? Do you know what relationships are right under your nose that God's given you to tend the wife, the children, the future relationships that lie ahead, that today's hard work in your heart and in your mind are going to bear fruit for years to come. The beauty of being part of a church, I don't care if it's not this one, but if it is that we put our shoulders to the plow because it's a beautiful thing. It's going to last into eternity the people that we love here are going to be with us forever. And we get to remind ourselves that these friendships, these relationships, these prayer meetings, these coffee moments, the mo people we linger with afterwards, it's a beautiful work. It's an amazing thing to partner with Jesus. Can I call the band up? I want to ask you, is the work great? Nehemiah landed by simply doing this. He says this, and I think it's, it should be prescriptive to us. What should we do? Well, let's do what Nehemiah did. But I prayed. Now strengthen my hands. Nehemiah understood that it wasn't just his strength. He resisted pride and going, I've got it. Look at me. I'm amazing. He didn't. He was a great leader, probably one of the greatest leaders in the Old Testament. But he doesn't go, look at me. I've got it. He says, now, Lord, strengthen my hands. He also resists self-pity probably be one of the most dominant identities that live in our generation, the victim mentality. I've got it so hard. If you only knew how hard I had it, my situation, my thing, my, the, the way people have treated me. Let me tell you, in Jesus, you've been treated like royalty. Not only have you been treated like royalty, you are royalty. And as you come to him by faith and you partner with him in this work, you start to see that Everything is possible in Jesus. At least everything that matters to Jesus is possible. So let's stand and let's pray. Now strengthen my hands, God. Lord, strengthen our hands. Pray for the men in this room who've maybe forgotten the wonder of, of servant, sacrificial love. I pray for myself in that, God, as I got a rebuke from a six-year-old. I'm reminded freshly of what it means to say sorry, to say no to silly, distractive temptations, and to love those you've called me to love, whether it's a phone or a hobby or just a personal preference or a bad habit. 
by faith today, I want to encourage you to, to put some stuff down, to say some no's. Nehemiah was invited onto the plane out to Oh No. And maybe today, by faith, you want to say, oh no. No to some of those habits that are distancing you, that are keeping you away. And I've focused on men in some ways. I'm not excluding women. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I think the Spirit of God is at work in all of us today. I want you to, each as God's speaking to you, to discern, to prayerfully say, God, distortion, distance, distraction, which one? I don't want to lose the shine of the great work. I'm going to lay bricks, but I want to lay bricks in the name of building a cathedral. Jesus, this morning, thank you that we get to partner in building the cathedral and building the wall, intending to the garden, in pioneering new lands. Oh God, help us. Strengthen our hands to that end. We resist the, the victim mentality. And we thank you for your love on the cross. We reject pride and we say we need you. And we need each other in the name of needing you. So teach us to do this together. The work is great. And we are grateful to be part of your amazing work. You are a great God. Let's sing.